bow your heads with me and pray. Father, we thank you for this day. And Lord, we thank you for the word. We thank you that it directs our lives. And if we have any question um, with anything in our life, we can find it in this word and you can, you can direct us properly on the way that we should go. Lord, um, your word is, is so powerful. I remember for me when uh, you, you started ministering to me through your word, Lord, it was just like you were throwing darts at my heart. And uh, I thank you for that. And I pray that would be the case as we open this word every day, that you would have something to say to us uh, that would just make our eyes go, wow, you know, you know, our eyebrows go up. You know, he, it sounds like he's talking directly to me. And so, Father, continue to do that. Uh, have your way with us. Holy Spirit, come down and anoint our ears to hear what you have to say. We thank you and love you in Jesus' name. Amen. So when I was growing, I grew up in South Florida, and uh, one of the favorite things I used to do is fish. And even when I was a, a kid, I loved to fish. And, uh, you know, the best thing was when my dad would tell me that, hey, when I get home today from work, we're going to go fishing. So I want you to get all your stuff together and be ready to go. And he never really told me what time he was going to come. He just said he was going to be there. Now, I knew when, you know, it's around dinner time. But seriously, my, my dad worked for the boys clubs of Miami. And, um, and he would work sometimes till 6, sometimes till 9 or 10. And so you never knew. But when he said he was going to go fishing, I knew it was going to be right around dinner time. But I just really, I had to keep an eye out for him. And... I was so excited because I knew, first of all, I love to eat seafood, but we never didn't come back with something. We always caught something. And uh, one of the things that I did mostly was I manned all the crab traps. So we threw out 12 crab traps because we, we fished two bridges and he would fish on one side and I would have all the other sides for um, for the crab traps. And so I was really excited to go. And so, you know, I'd go through my day and do the things I was doing, whether it was coming home from school, coming back from practice, um, or, or chores or whatever. But right around dinner time, I got my clothes on, I put all my sunscreen and, you know, the bug stuff on so I didn't get eaten alive. And, you know, I got my poles together and I'm all excited. I don't know if there's anybody here that likes to fish, but I mean, sometimes change your fishing line. It was, you'd really get into it and super, super excited. And so, you know, every, as the time got closer to what I thought was going to be the time, I was looking out the window and I was looking out there and seeing if my dad pulled up. We lived on a corner lot and we had a fenced in yard and from the fence to the road was, that was our driveway and it was gravel. And you could actually hear my dad pull in and uh, you could hear the gravel turning. And so I'd be listening and I'd be looking and then finally he got there and it was like, yes, let's go. And we'd go out and we'd have a blast. I remember that experience, how excited I was. And I, I get that way even now when I'm going fishing. And, you know, I do the same thing. I go out and buy new lures. I go put new line on the whole thing. Really super excited. And, uh, 
and I thought to myself, you know, as I'm reading through this, am I that excited about the return of Christ? And do I keep my eye on the things that are happening in this world? Do I keep my ear to the things that are being said? Am I finding things that are coming true in this world that Jesus predicted? Am I, and, and you know, I mean, listen, I went to a Christian school and my pastor said, Jesus is coming, you know, back in 1975, whatever it was. And, and, you know, he hasn't come yet, but I can promise you we're about 45 years closer to him returning. And he has promised as he's coming. I gotta, I gotta tell you something. So we're in revelation here. And so I, I just folded this section over right here so I could just turn right to it real quick. And so I got my concordance on this side opening and it says coming. You know what? I looked at it as like, did you do that? It's like, Jesus is coming. You know, my point to all this is we need to be ready. Now I've entitled the service, you know, ready or not, you know, uh, he's gonna come and you can either be prepared for his coming or not. You can't wait. He's not gonna wait. He's not gonna pull up and say, come on, get in. It's, it's gonna happen like that. And so you have to be ready and prepared right now. Six times in Revelation, he says, I'm coming quickly, which means suddenly, and there will be no time. So he says, be ready right now. I believe he wrote these seven letters to these churches to tell us what he's got to say about the church as his day approaches. He's telling us, and he gives us a full, he tells us about the faithful church, he tells us about the, uh, the persecuted church. He tells us about the church that's doing great, but isn't really, you know, having that relation, the relationship with him as, has waned. This, this is the compromising church. We're gonna see every church, everything that we see in churches as we read through here. And he says, listen, I've got something to say to every single one of you churches. And good thing is, like we're, we're starting to go on the downhill slope to these churches, you know, this is the compromising church. He says, I got a few things against you. And he's gonna tell us how to, how to fix that. What do you gotta do? And so, you know, we'll talk about that as we get further into this. But, you know, I just think, how do you get ready for the return of Christ? You get ready by asking him into your heart to be your savior. That's what it is. It's salvation. And, you know, Pastor Rob, when he taught, it wasn't last week, but the week before, we're in 2 Corinthians chapter uh, 6, verse 2. Um, here's a quote from Isaiah 48. It, it says uh, in this verse in 2 Corinthians, it says, for he says, capital H being God, in an acceptable, in an acceptable day, uh, I have heard you, and in the day of salvation, I have helped you. And then the apostle Paul says, behold, now is the acceptable time. Now is the day of salvation. So that's something that we can keep in our mind uh, about, you know, how do I get ready? Well, it's to get closer to God, to receive him, to receive Jesus as Lord and Savior. So let's look at our scriptures. We're in, uh, in 
verse 12 is where we're going to start out. And uh, it says, And to the angel of the church of Pergamos write, These things says he who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know your works, where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. And you hold fast to my name and didn't deny my faith, even in the days in which Antipas was my faithful martyr who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you because you have there those who hold to the doctrine of Balaam who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols and commit sexual immorality. Thus, you also have those who hold to the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. Repent, or else I will come to you quickly, and I will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To he who overcomes, I will give him some of the hidden manna to eat, and I will give him a white stone, and on the stone a new name, which no one knows except him who receives it. So we're looking at this city of Pergamos, okay? And the, the actually the word Pergamos means married, which it it's interesting because this city marries the culture. They in, they invite in people into the into the body, into the congregation or the house, and they bring in the customs of that city. And um, it represents the church age from 313 AD to 680 AD. Um, this is in Asia Minor. This is the area that's present day Turkey. And uh, it's about 60 miles north of Smyrna, 100 miles from the ocean. So there's no seaport. This city isn't known for its business or its commerce. This city is known for its pagan worship. And there's uh, a number of altars in, in our temples in the city. And that's really what it was known for. You have the altar of Zeus, the altar of Athena, which is the goddess of wisdom. You have Asclepius, which is the, the god of healing. And if you know the symbol of our healing, uh, the healing symbol, it's the rod with the two snakes going up it. That is Asclepius, and it's a weird situation. It was like back then, you would go into the temple if you were sick, and you would sleep overnight on the floor, and if a snake crawled across you, which they will, they would let non-poisonous snakes out. Uh, if it crawled across you, it had healing power. Like, my wife would never be healed, for sure. I mean, I like to play with snakes here and there, but yeah, that... Um, and a snake's going to do that. They're cold-blooded. You're warm. They're looking for something warm. But anyway, that was one of their gods. And then another god was um, Diocinus, which was the god of fertility. And um, it was also known as an educational city, like a college town. And how hard is it in a college town to preach the gospel? I'm asking you because I know. My son went to the same school. He went there on fire for the Lord, and they wrung him out. I, I didn't say this in the last service. He was sitting there, first service he's ever come to where I taught. But, you know, yeah, he went to that school, and they wrung him out. 
they, I don't even understand how somebody could do that. Um, it's hard to teach in an environment like this. Pagan worship, uh, education. This, this city had one of the largest libraries, second largest library in the world. Um, one thing they did also is they had this deal called uh, emperor worship. So there were three temples that were set up for the, uh, the emperor of Rome. And every year you, you didn't just go, you were required to go and uh, make a sacrifice to the emperor saying he is Lord, Caesar is Lord. And for Christians, that, that'd be a big problem. I mean, we look at the things that happen in government today. It's like, I'm not following that. Why? The government says, well, I'm not following it because it goes against God. And, uh, and, and so it, it's a tough place to be. But here's the thing. In that society, and we've, we talked about it in Smyrna because that was the persecuted church. They had the same situation. You know, I mean, you're not going to bow down. They're going to come to you. They're, they're going to come after you, and either they're going to kill you or they're going to excommunicate you out of society. If you didn't worship the emperor, you didn't get a certificate to be a part of their society. So it was a tough place. This was a tough place. You think, I would never want to plant a church here. But the idea was it didn't, it wasn't necessarily a church plant. It, it says uh, about the, when Paul was in Ephesus for two years. It said that the word of God went throughout all of Asia and there were churches just popping up all over the place because the word of God did that. All these seeds were planted and people received that truth and it just grew up. These were people who lived there. And so they were, they were saved from this lifestyle. But the truth of the matter is, is as they came together, probably in the house of uh, Gaius, who was, uh, he's talked about in Third John. Uh, he was a hospitable man. He opened up his house, had a home church. It's believed that maybe he was one of the first uh, pastors here. And um, I forgot what I was gonna say. Anyway, sorry about that. Uh, it, it was a tough place. So oh, what I was getting to is, you know, the, the people were uh, in the city were coming in and being a part of this church, and it was like bits and pieces of their lifestyle were coming in, things that should have been cleansed, should have been forgiven, taken away out of their lives, were, were infiltrating the church. So in verse 12, it says here that, uh, and to the angel, now, I mean, I've said this every time we've taught on these churches, but Jesus is dictating this letter to the apostle John on the Isle island of Patmos. And he, so he says, now to the angel of the church of Pergamos, this is what I want you to write. So the angel is the pastor and the angel pastor is skiing right now. I'm the other pastor, but um, no, the word angel means messenger. And um, he says, so to, to this pastor, and this pastor, like I said, uh, church historian said it was Gaius. And then when he moved on, maybe it was this guy Antipas uh, that, that he talks about in a little bit. But um, so he's talking to the pastor of the church and he goes, um, these things says he who has the sharp two-edged sword. 
So every time Jesus introduces himself in these letters to the churches, he gives an attribute of, his, of himself, a characteristic, but it has something to do with the makeup of that church. So for the church of uh, Smyrna, who was persecuted, he says, I am the first and the last, he who was dead, but now is alive. He said that because later he's gonna tell them, the persecution is not over, you're gonna get more. Okay, but I'm only gonna, I'm gonna only allot so much. Be faithful unto death. And so they had the promise that, hey, he raised himself from, de from the dead, he can raise me from the dead. Here, he's saying uh, that he is the one who has the sharp two-edged sword. Now, the sharp two-edged sword was designed to hit somebody in the top of the head and split them down to the crotch. That's what the, it's a five foot long, just under 10 pounds, this, this sword. And it was the sword of judgment. And it symbolizes here, Jesus is saying, it's the judging power of the word of God. And we know that, that Jesus is the word. The Bible tells us that in the beginning was the word. The word was, was God. The word was with God and the word was God. And, um, but the, the, so he, he has this two-edged sword. Um, in Hebrews chapter four, verse 12 will be on the overhead. Um, this is a familiar verse, for the word of God is living and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit in joints and marrow, in the discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. I think about myself when I was in uh, coming to church, my wife had, uh, she had rededicated her life. I was still just partying and having a blast. Um, but I was going because she was changing. And I'm sitting in there and I'm thinking, what the heck is she going through? Why, I mean, why is this big change? She's different. I don't like it, but I kind of like it. And then I'm hearing the word and it, it's like week after week. And it's like, okay, I can go with that. Okay, I, I, I believe this, I believe that. I went to Christian school. I just, I was just wild. And the Lord started speaking to me with this sword. And he was just digging in my heart. He was cutting into it. And he, some of these things he was laying wide open and filleting. And, um, and he broke me there. It was, uh, it was a, I mean, I definitely relate to this, how, it's, how it can cut through the soul and the spirit, discerns your thoughts and your intents of the heart. Um, so anyway, Jesus goes on with this letter and he says, uh, he says, I know your works and where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. It's like, you know, Jesus knows everything about us. You think about when he talked to the Pharisees and the Pharisees would talk among themselves and he was like, why do you say that? And they said, say what? We didn't say anything to you. And he, he knows our thoughts. He knows everything going on. He knows everything. We might be sitting here saying, hey, how's it going? Oh, it's great. And then he goes, yeah, it's not. You know, you know, you don't feel that way. You know, this is going on. You know, you're plagued by this. He knows everything that's going on. He tells him, I know your works. And, and what he was saying to them is you have good works. Even though I'm gonna say some things that are gonna hurt, you have good works. Even in the hostile environment, even though it's difficult that 
the, with the, the stuff going on in there in, in maybe getting people to come in fellowship together and being encouraged in a word. Even though, even though it's difficult, you have good works. And here they are. He's going to list two of them. He says, number one, you hold fast to my name. Uh, he says, uh, and then he says, uh, and you did not deny my faith. Um, the first thing, you hold fast to my name. And I think of myself as, you know, I have the name Christian, you know, and that's what I hold fast to is that is my name. That means Christ-like. Am I Christ-like? No, not all the time. Uh, I try to be, I'd love to be, but I need more of him in me and less of me to be Christ-like. But I hope to say, are you known for your relationship with Jesus? And I know that, you know, I'm, I live in Nolansville, so I try to do everything I can in Nolansville. I got a couple Home Depots. I got a Publix over here, uh, a Kroger over here, Ace Hardware, the people at the dump. These people know me. Hey, pastor, or, some, you know, and it's like, they know me who, for who I am. And I think about that and it's like, you know, I was in the guy that cooks the ribs at the, uh, at the Kroger. You know, he, he shared with me, his wife had finally passed away. So, all right, time out. Stop right here in the middle of the aisle. He wasn't cooking ribs this day. We're gonna pray. So I got a chance to pray with him. It's like, do people know us for our Lord? Do they know that? I mean, does it come out? Or do they say, hmm, I thought he was a Christian. Look what they got going on over there. You know, is that what your neighbors say? He says, you hold fast uh, to my name. You hold on to my name. You hold hard. And, uh, and then it says, you didn't deny my uh, faith even in the days that Antipas was killed among you. So this, you know, when you look this up about what happened to Antipas, they heated up this brass bull uh, to a red hot. And they took this, probably their pastor, and it says, and it happened among you where Satan dwells. So it happened in that city and in the midst of the people that he's writing to. They took Antipas and put him in this burning hot bull and cooked him alive in front of them. And even in the midst of the trauma from that, they didn't deny their faith. And it's like, you think to yourself, would you deny your faith? Jesus was able to tell these guys that had issues in the church, you, you did a good job. These are accommodations that, uh, that he does for that he recognizes. So Jesus knows what you're going through. He knows where you live. You know, this is where Satan lives, where he dwells, but he can't be everywhere. You've heard that before. Satan can't be everywhere. He sure feels like he's everywhere. Now that, you know, the, in Ephesians chapter six, it talks about, you know, we don't war against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and spiritual forces everywhere. We got probably spiritual forces flying around here right now that we don't know about. Um, you know, he, he doesn't dwell everywhere, but Jesus says right now at this time period, in that time, that's where he dwelled. And it was a time period where it was very difficult for this church to stand up for Christ and not 
come up against opposition. And so what's the opposition? Because Jesus says in verse 14, I got a couple things against you or a few things against you. And so he names them. And if you look at 14, he says, people, uh, there are those who hold to the doctrine of Balaam. And then in verse 15, there are those who hold to the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. Now, if you look at that and you say, that's not the whole church, that's not everybody. So what's, what's the problem? Because like in, if we brought all our people together, we'd probably have people that have skeletons in their closet, right? That's the truth of the matter. That's the way it is. The problem is, is none of this stuff was being dealt with. It wasn't being dealt with. It was out in the open and it was almost celebrated. And that's what Jesus had a problem with here is it's like, the, listen, the church can't tolerate sin inside the church. You come in here and, and we hear the word every week and how God forgives sin. And it's like, it comes in one ear and out the other for some of us. And he says, no, it can't be tolerated. And, and you know, the church never wants to uh, ask somebody to go worship someplace else. We don't, we don't want to do that. We work hard to get all these seats filled. We actually pray over every single one of these seats that God would fill them. Obviously, nobody prayed for this service. No, <laughs> no. Um, it's, again, it's a nice day. There's a lot of things happening here. Um, but anyway, we're looking at this doctrine of Balaam. And, you know, if we know anything about numbers, it, it's numbers 22 through 26 in chapter 31. Um, as Israel is coming into the promised land, uh, they come to Midian, they camp outside of Midian. And the Midianite king, he was worried because there was a reputation. They were conquering lands. He didn't want to lose his land. So um, but he, he hires this guy, Balaam, who was, he had a spirit of divination. He was a prophet. And he hires him to curse Israel. So when Israel goes against Midian, they're going to be cursed and they're going to fail. But the problem was the three times that Balak went there or Balaam went there to curse Israel, he went to throw a curse out, opened his mouth and God filled it with a blessing. And he says, wait a minute, wait a minute. And he did it again, did it again. Finally, he says to Balak, he goes, hey, I'm gonna have to give you your money back because, you know, I can't, I can't go against God. He won't allow me. And I thought, <laughs> my wife says, yeah, I wish he'd shut your mouth too. You know, she did. But, um, you know, but the thing is, it says that Balaam taught Balak to put a stumbling block. And what he did was he said, listen, I can't go against God. He's not allowing me. But I know you can draw the Israelites out from underneath God's protection. And so he says, take all your pretty women and send them over there and let them rub shoulders with the Israelites. Just let them mingle and talk. Maybe, you know, share a meal with them. Share some of the customs. Seduce them. And that's exactly what happened. And the, the, the Israelite army sinned and uh, Balak got exactly what he wanted. And they should have known better because in Deuteronomy it says, uh, well, in Deuteronomy chapter seven, God says, listen, when I deliver somebody into your hand, 
He says, you utterly destroy them. Don't make a vow with them. Don't, don't do anything. It says here in verse three and four, nor shall you make marriages with them, nor shall you give your daughter to the son, nor take their daughter for your son, for they will turn your son away from following me and uh, serve other gods. That's funny. Um, there's probably one kid back there. <laughs> um, and, and that's my wife in there. So she's, she's, she might be sleeping. Would somebody go wake her up? No. Um, no, he says, for they will turn your son away from following me and serve other gods. And so the ang my anger will be aroused. That's exactly what happened in, in this story. And so he says here that this was commonplace to have idolatry in this city of Pergamos. And whenever, wherever you have idolatry, you have sexual immorality comes behind it. Uh, it's, it's just the way it was. It wasn't acceptable. Jesus is saying it's not acceptable back then when I delivered you. It's not acceptable now. And even today, it's not acceptable. We look at the word of God right now and we say, uh, well, well, we'll be studying this next week with Pastor Rob, but it's 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14 through 16. Paul says, do, do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness? And what communion has light with darkness? And what accord has Christ with Belial, or the devil? Or what part... Uh, has a believer with an unbeliever? And what agreement does the, te the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of God. And we think about that. You are the church. So, you know, if there's something contrary to the word of God, if there's something contrary to what God wants in your life, then you got to get it out. We got to have it out. And the problem is, is this church was allowing it to come in, didn't do anything about it, and God's calling them out on it. I mean, it's obvious that, you know, when we have people come in here uh, into the church, you know, we all sin. The Bible says all sin come short of the glory of God, every single one of us. Even if we've received the Lord, call ourselves a Christian, we go out and we blow it daily. It just happens. That's why God said, when I forgive your sins, it'll be all your sins, past, present, and in future. So why was this coming into this fellowship? And you have to say it was part of the culture. The church, nowadays the church tries to be culturally relevant to what's outside the church and draw people in. And um, I've never been to a church like that, but uh, I hear it happens. You know, I can't imagine the day that we have smoke and lights here that's kind of weird. And some, and the people that have told me about that, that it happens even here in the city, it's like, so what's your problem with it? You know, they're just trying to give you the best that they can. And it's like, I just don't think it's reverent. And okay, that's a, that's a legitimate beef. But the culture of the church was coming into the world. In, in the culture of the, the world was coming into the church. We need more of the culture of the church getting into the world. Uh, we're supposed to be different. God has called us to be different. 
We've heard the verse that says, you are sanctified, you are justified, and you'll be glorified. Sanctified means set apart. That's different. God said, yeah, I'm gonna save you, forgive you of your sins, and I'm gonna set you over here. I'm not gonna take you out of the world. You have to live in the world. You have to go to college and deal with this stuff. And, and that's just the way it is. You know, we have to come up against people in business. He said, don't be unequally yoked. That doesn't just mean a relationship of a husband and a wife or a boyfriend or a girlfriend. That means business. I mean, how do you do business with somebody that doesn't have the same values as you, right? I did it. I can speak that and I can say that because I did it. And I waited for $60,000 for nine months. <laughs> it was like, come on, I did the job. I financed the whole job, pay me. And it was like, I couldn't understand. No, I'm sorry, 90 days, not nine months. But it was 90 long days. Anyway, that was one of the problems, false teaching. And what did false teaching do? It brought in idolatry, uh, sexual immorality. And then he talks about this doctrine of the uh, Nicolaitans, Nicolaitans, Nicolodians, Nicolaitans. Um, Nico means to conquer. Uh, Laetin is the laity or the people conquered the people. The church was was, was above the people. And think about this. I'm not going to say any religion or cult or anything, but can you think about a, ch a church or relig religious organization where the church leaders are above, high, higher than the, than, you know, the people in the church, pointy hats, you know, come to the confessional and I'll pray for your sins to God. Listen, God, God says, you come to me with your sins. We don't have to go to anybody. We think about, you know, and it's not to make fun or even put down. I didn't say it. Jesus says, and you hold to the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. He doesn't hate the Nicolaitans. He doesn't like, he doesn't hate the the cult people. He doesn't hate these religious organizations that do this. He, the, the people, he died for every single one of us. He hates, sorry, he hates what they're doing. And when you think about that, in Matthew 27, 51, it tells us that the veil of the temple was torn from top to bottom. The thickness of the veil was a man's hand, like four or five inches. And it was torn from top to bottom. I don't know how tall it is. I didn't look that up. I don't remember. But it, it was something that was humanly impossible to happen. And that happened when Jesus died on the cross. Jesus opened up the veil. The veil separated the, the holy of holies where the presence of God was from the people that were coming. And only the high priest could go in there and uh, enter into that veil. And God ripped it open for us. And you have to think about that. Jesus is probably saying about the, the Nicolaitans, do they understand what it costs me to open that veil? He's jealous. He's a jealous God. Hebrews 10, 19 through 22 says, therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way he consecrated for us through, um, through the veil, that is his flesh, 
and having a high priest over the house of God, that high priest is capitalized, that's Jesus, uh, having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. It's like we go to the Lord, he sprinkles his blood over our sins. His blood takes our sins away. We were washed by the water of the word. We are the bride of Christ, his own special people bought by the blood of Christ. And he doesn't want anybody to come in between us. That's the point here. He says, hey, I hate what these guys are doing to my people, to my bride. So these things were going overlooked in, um, in Pergamos. And so, uh, you know, we say they're a compromising church. They, they were like, okay, we're gonna sweep it under the rug. Maybe it'll go away. Maybe we won't notice it. But what does it do? It just keeps going and it becomes, it, it spreads inside the church. And, and that's not a good thing. And Jesus says he gives us the remedy for it. Right here in verse 16, he says, repent. Now, the repent, the R word. You know, we don't want to talk about the R word, the S word, the H word. Um, you know, but we have to do that to get the F word, forgiveness. You know, shame on you. Jesus forgave us of our sins, guaranteed. He promises. You know, we think about repent, and I think about this whole thing because, guys, I, you know, I was like, okay. You think about it, when I first was saved, I was like, well, past, present, and future sins have been saved. I asked for Jesus to forgive me of my sins. I don't have to repent again because they're all taken care of, but that's not true. He's telling this church they need to repent for what they're doing wrong. It's the same thing for me. I sin every day. You know, we say that, you know, before my feet hit the ground, I've probably sinned. It's like we need to be in contact with God, talking to him about these things, where we fall short, where we fall short. Repentance, this is important. This isn't from me. I, I stole it from somebody, probably David Guzik. Um, thank you, David. Repentance is an invitation that gets us back into fellowship with Jesus. You know, we think, oh, I got to admit that I've done something wrong. I don't ever want to do that. And it's like, no, it's Jesus inviting you back into fellowship with him. That's all it is. It's a conversation. Jesus told five of the seven churches uh, to repent there's a good chance that we need to as well. He says in 17, he says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The Holy Spirit's speaking to us. You know, um, if we all sin, and we do, then we all have compromise, and we do. And, you know, Jesus says, all you have to do is come to me. He says, I want you to hear this. He, he, he gives it to it this in this letter. In every single letter I've read so far, I, I pulled something out for me. Even the church of Smyrna, it was like, you know, well, I don't feel persecuted, but the church of Smyrna, 
I mean, this church is having a hard time with some of the things going on with the construction stuff in the city, and we have meetings tomorrow. We got meetings tomorrow and Monday trying to figure out what they're going to allow us to do, how we're going to get through this process. And, you know, it's like I take, they're not persecuting me, but I take what Jesus was talking about uh, to the church of Smyrna to be faithful to the end. Be an example. Let this be a time where you can, you know, minister to maybe the people at the city, the people at the county. We're meeting with county officials uh, tomorrow. Uh, maybe the workers, the firefighters. The firefighters yesterday almost, I was fixing a light out there on the, li- on the ladder and they came by with the fire truck and they beat that loud horn and I was like a cat on the ceiling. <laughs> I thought I almost fell off. I was like, they scared the daylights out of me. And that, the guy that was in here, that was him. He was the, he was the driver. Um, but anyway, Jesus has something that he wants us to hear. And it's, it's simple. It's just go to him, have a conversation. Lord, I blew it again. He will never, ever, ever say, I'm tired of that. As a parent, listen, you know, my, my son's 33. The other one's turning, or just turned 30. And, you know, I'm tired of hearing sorry. I really am, you know. It's like, you don't believe that. You're not sorry, you know. But Jesus never says that. He's not like us. He always will forgive us. Um, so promise to the overcomers. Uh, you guys got all day. We don't have another church. Promise to the overcomers. Uh, is that it says here in verse 17, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give him some of the hidden manna to eat. The hidden manna, uh, we know the manna means what is it? They don't know what it was, but it was good. It hit the spot for the time. Um, and he says, I'm gonna give you some of the hidden manna. You know, that's the bread of life. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Whoever eats of the bread of life will never die. And he's, that's the promise. You repent, you'll never die. You will, well, first of all, if you don't repent, you're still never gonna die, but you're not gonna be happy. We have eternal souls. But this, uh, the city of Pergamos, he, he, he says, if you repent, instead of eating things sacrificed to idols, the believers would eat the superfood from God that, that it's a promise that they'll be nourished with everything that they need, even into eternity. And then it also says that uh, here that I will give him a white stone and on that white stone, uh, a new name, which no one else knows except him who, who receives it. So a white stone in this day in the court of law meant you were acquitted, you were innocent found innocent. He says, I'm going to give you a white stone. I think about it. It's a clean slate. God says, if you, if you repent, I'm going to give you a clean slate and I'm going to keep giving it to you every single time. Uh, this, this white stone with a name on it. It's also in, in the athletic games of this, this time, it was your banquet ticket. You know, when you, when the games were over, they had a banquet for, for all the athletes. And the only way you could get in is if you had the white stone with your name on it. And you think about for us, for those of us who repent and, and say, Lord, I blew it. I'm coming to you. You know, restore me. 
He's going to take a look at this white stone. He's going to have your name on it. And he's going to come on into the banquet feast, the marriage supper of the lamb. And, and it says here, talking about the name that nobody knows, that's a personal thing. God knows the name because he wrote it. And you know the name because it's you, but nobody else knows that name. That's pretty awesome. Talking about a personal relationship with the Lord. It's, it's almost like it's you and him. And so looking at this today, you know, I see in my own life, think places where I fall short. And, and it, it just tells me, it's like, hey, don't stop coming to me. Don't stop coming to the Lord. Don't let anybody stand in the way of, of your relationship. We not, might not have anything to do with some of this food sacrifice to idols, sexual immorality. It might not be something that we deal with, or it might. But, you know, there's something going on in our life that separates us from the Lord. And he says, all you have to do is come to me. He says, every single, 10 times out of 10, I'm gonna forgive it. I wrote this down as I was going through this this morning. Um, you know, I was thinking about this verse. I had to look it up, but 1 John 1, 9 says, confess your sins and he will forgive you and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Guaranteed. It's a guaranteed. So uh, we're going we're gonna to take communion and David, you're going to go grab it for me, please, and pass it out. Um, uh, he's coming. He's going to come. It's a promise. Just as, as much as we can sit here and say, I'm gonna come to church every Sunday and I'm gonna read his word, I'm gonna pray, and I'm gonna pray with others, and I'm gonna do what's right in the sight of God. Um, you know, just as much as that is true, he's coming here for us someday. So either you can be ready or not. Well, let's go ahead and pray, and after I'm done praying, uh, David will go ahead and pass out the elements. Father, we thank you for this day. And Lord, we thank you for the word that cuts right to our heart. Lord, uh, there's no denying uh, the fact that we need you, that we need you every single day. <laughs> and as I pray uh, before I even come up here, it's Holy Spirit, if you don't go before me, I'm not gonna go. <laughs> and so Lord, we just thank you that you send your Holy Spirit and that he guides us, that he helps us. And Lord, as we take this time to come to you, we're, we're doing it because you told us that we, we need to do this. We need to do this frequently. We need to have, this might be something that you could consider being religious, but Lord, this is something that is on our mind every day, what you've done for us in going to the cross. So Lord, I pray as we take this time, Lord, if you've moved our heart to uh, pray a prayer of repentance or just to talk to you and say, Lord, what are you doing in my life? Where do you want me? That Lord, you, uh, that you would bring those things to us and that we would bring them to you and you would hear. We thank you, Lord, for all that you do. And we praise you in Jesus' name, amen.